Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. Episode 93 finds Graham McMillan and me back in our respective Skype spaces and ready to mix it up. Yes, this episode may have our highest number of largely polite disagreements and is one of our most varied, careening from topics like the mascots of British comic magazines to reviews of the digital launch of Monkey Brain Comics, Marvel Now, Waffle Window Then, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Century 2009, Brown Eye, the fabulous Popeye number three, the massive New Dead Guardians, the glory of Batman Incorporated number two, creating new IP, anxiety dreams, who is stronger, Watchmen or Walking Dead, San Diego Comic Con, and as if we could help it, much, much more in a very neat two hour and ten minute package. Plus, there are once again time stamp show notes to be found over at savagecritic.com to prove to you we are giving you the biggest batch of everything and more you can buy with your newfangled ear dollars. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Borak Thung, Jeff Lester. Excuse me, Borak who, Graham McMillan? Oh my god, Borak Thung. That's what Tharg the Mighty used to say in every issue of 2018. <laughs> that would be his introduction, because he was an alien, you see. He was an alien editor, because it was the galaxy's greatest comic. Yes, yes. And he came from the planet Beetlejuice, which, as we all know now, is not a planet, but it was the 70s. Um, and so every issue, he'd start off his letter column by saying, Borak Thung, Earthlets. Wow. And, and I think he did. I could be wrong, but I think he said at the end, Splendor of Earthric. <laughs> it was awesome. It, this, was, it was totally something to grow up with. A glorious tradition that's still carried on to this day? Or? It is, Yes. Hang on, that you've just reminded me. I have the I have a, a digital copy of recent issue of two thousand and eight. Oh. I can open that up right now and I can see if he's still saying Borak Thun. That's right. Uh let's see. Yes, Borak Thun Earthlets and he does end up with Splendig for Thrig. <laughs> it's it's just great when you're a kid. Like there's something awesome about the mythology of the comic, if that makes sense. Because right. at, at least uh when I was, you know, when I was reading it, and I was like seven, so it's like 1981 or something, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just started. Uh, there was an, a complete mythology about it. Like Tharg came to Earth to launch 2080 in part because he was defending the planet against thrill suckers, who were like <laughs> mushrooms with big snouts who would come and try and suck the excitement out of people. Wow! Uh, and there'd be there'd be stories about this every now and again. You you'd get a Tharg story. <laughs> uh, and so he does this by packing 2000D with as much thrill power as possible Ah, which so is why like when new stories appeared it was a new thrill because hmm. it was that's what it was um, and the actual people who were involved in making 2000D would make cameos in these comic strips as robots right or Dave Givens popped up as a superhero at one point right <laughs> yeah that was a spin-off that was the Star Lord comic where he ah. was um, I want to say it was called Big E but I could be wrong <laughs> but yeah those photographs are amazing yeah they, they, they keep on showing up online anyone who wants to know what I'm talking about Google Dave Gibbons and Star Lord and you will see the photographs of him in this amazing outfit from like 1978 or something <laughs> uh, because he was he was that title's fictitious editor who was a superhero ah. uh, and then Star Lord got folded into 2080 when it got cancelled that's right I do remember that from the article so he does pop up under 2080 there but, but I, don't, I don't think Big E ever did. I think it was it was the characters from the comic as opposed to the editor. 
yeah, his editor, but because he also had popped up as a character on the strips, I think I, I want to say that he popped up. You see drawings of him from 2000 AD, although it could that's be awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, did um, Tharg Tharg the Mighty was just I love that he's still around. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, is it such a kid's concept? Mm-hmm. That that your editor is a, an alien from another planet, and I love it because they got rid of it in the nineties. Oh, did they? Yeah, they wrote Tharg out, um, <laughs> and it was the comic was taken over by I won't say they're called the Men in Black, but it might they might have been called Vector Thirteen. Mm-hmm. It's actually like much more generic, much more nineteen nineties conspiracy theorists. You know, we have no name. We are editing your comic type thing, and it, there was. Eventually, they're just like we put Thor back. Thor just worked better as the editor of the comic. It's great <laughs> to the point where people don't like because everyone knows that guy called Matt Smith actually edits the comic. Mm-hmm. But he's just known as the current Thor. The current Thor. Wow. Well, you know, I um, you talking about this is actually sort of an interesting segue to something I'll mention. I think not now, but shortly. But wouldn't it be great? We've had all sorts of intercompany crossovers, but wouldn't it be great to have a crossover of the the comic book hosts of these various anthologies? <laughs> Did you ever read? Um, I want to say it was Peter David and Richard Howell's creepy miniseries from Harris and Dark Horse in the nineties. No. Um, which has Uncle Creepy and whatever, Eerie, Cousin Eerie. Mm-hmm. And I want to say there's another one. Is there an old crone? Host? Yeah, there is a third one, yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're all in it. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not uh, well, it is an anthology because the characters in the main story get trapped in rooms and they experience their worst nightmare, which are the, it's the anthology portion. Right. But there's a, a story arc going through. It's, it was a four-issue series. There's a story arc going through the entire series where all of these characters existed in this, the same house uh, and that the house was trying to basically kill everyone inside this. <laughs> uh, but you've just reminded me, there was also Eagle, which was a, you know, was a classic British comic in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got relaunched in the 80s, I want to say. Um, after a while, it ended up with a fictitious editor as well, but it ended up with an editor who had started off as a character in a story. Oh, wow. Um, there was a story from another comic altogether. And I should explain, when British comics get cancelled at that point, mm-hmm. they just get folded in with another title because right. they were all anthologies. So what would happen is the strongest stories from that anthology would mm-hmm. go into another anthology, replacing the weakest stories from that anthology. Hmm. Um, and so, for example, 2000 AD became 2000 AD and Star-Lord, which then became 2000 AD again, which then became 2000 AD and Tornado. Mm. before going back to 2080. And Eagle got folded in with the title called Scream. And Scream had a series called The 13th Floor, uh, mm. which had a robot. It was it was it had an AI butler, essentially, in this building, um, who cared about his tenants so much that if anyone threatened them, he'd kill the people that threatened them <laughs> by taking them to a 13th floor, which didn't exist because buildings don't have 13th floors, or if you have a, a suspicious, uh, superstitious architect. But his 13th floor would be uh, virtual reality. And so he'd be able to convince these people into having heart attacks. <laughs> and that was the running theme of the story. And the series ended after it being folded in with Eagle, with the AI being moved to the offices of the Eagle comic. And he suddenly became the fictitious editor of the comic. That's really funny. Wow. 
I don't know why I'm going down this like memory uh, lane of British comics today. You know, it's you are, and it's really funny because um, uh, my probably one of many secret shames to come out during this uh, particular podcast episode uh, is that I actually spent real money for virtual goods and got the uh, Vampirella archives during the Vampirella sale that Dynamite was offering. Mm-hmm. And I have to give Dynamite some credit because they really kind of had like a bunch of different types of Vampirella trade paperbacks with different price points and different page counts. Uh, in fact, I, I think the the Vampirella archives with um, uh, focusing on Kurt Busiek had was something kind of crazy. It was like 380 pages for like five ninety nine or something like That's that. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I ended up, uh, you know, paying money, for, more money for the original uh, Vampirella archives that were the first couple of volumes of the Warren books. Because uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's all those great artists in there, you know, Wally Wood and Frazetta does some covers. And I never, I, what, you know. What was, the, what was the name of the actual, the artist who did the majority of them? I want to say Jose um, Gonzalez, but that's totally not. That's that's a, a fairly recent singer-songwriter. <laughs> do, do you know the guy I'm meaning? Uh, I don't. I don't. Oh, that's true. That's really going to frustrate me. I'm going to have to look that up. Anyway, yes. keep talking, Jeff. Well, thank you. Thank you. I shall. Uh, so the thing that's kind of crazy is that a, um, it it's done like it's got this weird Vampirella uh, sort of mini story written by Force J Ackerman, who I don't know if that name means anything yeah. to you. Yeah. So Force J Ackerman wrote it, and then it was drawn by other dudes. Oh, you must mean Jose Gonzalez because that's I do. the guy that they mentioned here. Yeah. Um, Anyway, before before it becomes anything, it's it's largely a an EC style anthology with Vampirella introducing the various stories, and then um, at least in the first few issues, there's like an eight page story of her on her planet of Draculon or whatever. Uh, ooh, this stuff's really terrible. I have to say, it'll be really interesting to see what happens when the quality kicks in. But uh, every once in a while, I'll see some art. Like Mike Royer has some stories where he's actually doing the art himself, mm-hmm. you know. And it looks uh, – it's lovely. In some cases, it's incredibly stiff. But it's and, – and Billy Graham actually has had a horror story in each of the first issues who, you know, went on to draw uh, Black Panther uh, in Don McGregor's uh, run. And his stuff's kind of interesting too. But basically, I'm like, all of it is amateurish as shit. And I was kind of fascinated by this aspect of like, oh, here we've got, um, you know, a mascot, a creepy or EC style mascot who sort of has her own little strip, but eventually ends up taking over the whole book. Yeah, exactly. She she becomes the the, the, wait. uh, Am I horribly misremembering? Was she? She was Warren, right? That was published by Warren. Yes, yes, she was. Was creepy and. Eerie? Oh, were they also published by Warren? Yeah, they were. How are, how are the licenses different then? How come Dynamite has one and Dark Horse has the other? Um, I think because they were separate titles. You know, like there's also still The Rook, which I don't know is floating out there. I don't know if like DC ended up picking up that or not. But I do know that the there were uh, a conglomeration of guys who bought the rights to, I want to say Creepy and Eerie and something else, but I'm assuming someone else got a hold of the rights to Vampirella. Or else Warren kept the rights and Dynamite are just licensing it. But I do know that 
you know, the very first page of this anthology has like the world's most generic rights on the copyright. <laughs> it's it's literally like, you know, copyright TM, don't look at me dot LLC. Oh, know? but and, but all the dynamite books have that. They're amazing. The ones, especially the uh John Carter and Tarzan ones, because they're both trading on the fact that the original novels are in the public domain, even though the characters aren't, which is why the comics are called Warlord of Mars and Lord of the Jungle. Uh, uh, but the, yeah, the, the the copyright information in there is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm guessing because this is the um, Vampirella's copyright and all the contents are assigned to DFI, which I'm going to guess is Dynamic Forces Incorporated, since yeah, it's it is. in Dynamite. So it's but... not. It's not. Um, there's another one. There's another company. Savage Tales. Is that what it's called? Savage Tales. Is that a company? Yes, it's like a shell company. It's oh, a company that's, that's always great. mentioned in conjunction with uh, DFI in the, in the <laughs> Dynamite books. It's really, it's fascinating. Mark Barucci has, is either really smart or really, really sneaky or both. Um, Probably both. Because, yeah, there, there's, it's always like, you know, under license from Savage Tales. And you're like, but Savage Tales is him. Yeah. Like he's exactly. licensing something from himself. But it's genius. I mean, how, how like you said, genius or create or just kind of a dope or because I mean, who in this? It's bad enough that people are laundering money. The fact that you're actually comic book character laundering is kind of it's kind of a, kind of a sad state of affairs, don't you think? <laughs> well, yes, but let's face it, that's never stopped anyone before. Well, true, true. Uh, uh, much to everyone's chagrin. So, yeah, no, I honestly think that, you know, you get Vampirella, uh, Uncle Creepy, maybe the the EC mascot characters, have them cross over with the 2000 AD characters, and then I don't really know oh, who look, they would... You have Cain and Abel from DC. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, Elvira. Do you remember they revived House of Mystery with Elvira as a lead character in oh, the 80s? Oh, yeah, that's right. right. Um, and who else? There's, I feel like there's lots. I feel like there, there's lots of these characters. Oh, sure, because there are so many EC spin-off type things, you know. Yeah, or like complete this. rip-offs, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know, that it'd be kind of curious. I'm, I just, I'm having trouble figuring out who we would uh, put them up against, you know. Uh, it'd be one of those things. Stanley. <laughs> right. No, it, you know, back in the 80s, it would be some like thinly veiled Tipper Gore stand in or something like that. Or, you know, it would be like the unholy forces of like Frederick Wortham and, yeah, you know, and Tipper Gore. And yeah. And so, who is that person now? Who is uh, the moral majority in America now? Because it's, it's all been sort of deflated. It's now names. You know what I mean? You'd be like one million moms, but that's not a person. Right. When will you, well, because that's the way things go now. It's it's all PACs. It's not really individuals, you know. And and I don't really know where where the. I mean, sadly, the moral component is kind of. I say it's sad just because comic books are so not considered dangerous anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like apart from a few crazy, you know, renegade like, hey, here's here's a guy selling you know, pornography, pornographic comics in Texas, you know, within like five miles of a school, let's arrest him for obscenity. You know, apart from weirdo DA, things like that, I think most of the time people will try and attack video games when they decide that they're going to Well, that's to because kids play video games then because they're reading comics. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Kids are reading comics, just not nearly in the numbers as they're reading video games. 
you know. I don't so. play video games and not read them, Jeff, because reading video games is kind of dull. Wait, did I say reading video games? I'm afraid you did. Well, you know, I didn't correct you when you said Mark Berlucci or uh, at, at Dynamic Forces, so I'm going to call it even. You know. <laughs> okay, then. Hi, how are you doing? Hello. I was I, back in San Francisco. You know, uh, great, I guess. You know, he says utterly unconvincingly. Uh, San Francisco is really lovely. It's been great to be back. Uh, I've been having the worst time getting back into our uh the i guess my life. my workflow <laughs> yeah. yeah my life and my workflow so and Edie and i came back and perhaps unsurprisingly for somebody who managed to eat you know seven waffles in two days uh i might have gained um about five pounds just from the week we were visiting portland alone so good job I, I know i'm i'm very impressed with myself because as anyone who's met me knows i'm kind of a stick figure so uh yeah so we're kind of in the process of like okay well let's see what we're going we're trying to you know put our nose to the grindstones and uh you know eat healthily and do all this like very good conscientious stuff and we're both really in theory both very much into it but in practice, I am doing just horribly. So it's like I've been very unproductive the last couple of days. And, and even this, I'm like, oh, I kind of sit here and talk about comics for two hours. Uh, you know, like you know what's kind of hilarious? I am feeling very much the same today. And it's all because of July 4th. Oh, really? I, like, there's just something about having yesterday off that like, mm-hmm. just knocked me for a loop. Mm. Well, I'm not surprised. You work so rigorously. I can see where it's like your your body's like, but and your brain is like, no, we don't take one day off. We always take two days off. I'm not coming back yet. I what? Yeah, and, and yesterday was also like, what do you mean you're you're not sitting in front of a computer all day? <laughs> it really was like yesterday was very difficult, and today has been really. It's it's actually been surprisingly productive, and by that mm-hmm. I mean I have managed to produce. And that is surprising. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when I woke up, it really was one of those, I'm doing that? Oh, God, do I have to? What I would give for a day off. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's kind of it's kind of sad that, you know, at least for me, I'm like, that's going to involve talking about comic books for two hours. That's great. You know, uh, I really part of me is knows that it's just sort of trying to crawl there through sort of my I feel like a, I feel like a surly 15 year old again, where it's just like, I don't care if I want to do it. I don't want to do it. You know, so. <laughs> Jeff, how can we make this easier for you? I've already pretended to be Thark the Mighty by saying, <laughs> what else do I have to do? Maybe if you'd let me know that was coming, I think I would have been a little more like excited. Um, so Jeff, dude, this, this has been a crazy week. It it kind of has been, yeah. Because you've had Monkey Brain and you've had Marvel now exclamation point. Uh, yes, and I love that it's Marvel then uppercase now exclamation point. I don't know why that amuses me quite so much, but it, oh, it I know why. It, well, because it's because shit, isn't it? Yeah, it's because exactly. It's, it's shit. Like, it's two different variations of shit. I really yeah. have a problem with, you know, this is our brand name. You have to put the punctuation in, and I really have a problem with this is our brand name. You have to capitalize particular parts. Oh, so when yeah. you have both, it really mm-hmm. is like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, but it's, it's just so, so monkey brain happens and marvel net happens, and I know which one is officially more important. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. 
for my I write for six outlets regularly, right? Yes. One of them has no real comic connection whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I've written about Monkey Brain for four of them in the past mm-hmm. three days. Wow. And by that, I mean I have been asked to write about Monkey Brain for three oh, of them. Okay, that's good to know. And you pitched it to the fourth? Yeah. Uh-huh. So for me, <laughs> I feel like there's so much more interest about Monkey Brain, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though Marvel is supposed to be the one that everyone's supposed to be paying attention to. Oh, yeah. Like, well, outside of the media bubble, like, is that, mm-hmm. is that what other people are thinking? Like, is, is that, would you say that's a fair assessment, that Monkey Brain is something people are legitimately interested in, as opposed to Marvel now, which they are being told about a lot? Yeah, I th- I think that currently uh, Marvel now is in the being told about a lot stage, and maybe maybe it will change. Like maybe that will change up when San Diego hits, and what I assume are actual images start getting leaked out, and they, there starts you mean, being more. You mean you haven't seen the spectacular Uncanny Avengers cover? No, did they actually release one already? Oh, yes, they did. And for anyone who thinks that Rogue would look much better with a deformed head, you're there, my friends. Or what? the ugliest Havoc costume redesign ever. And bear in mind, it's Havoc. <laughs> just it's say, true. It's There's John, somebody John who Cassidy, does not get a break. It's John Cassidy mm-hmm. proving that he used to be really, really good and now he is not. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a stunningly lazy piece of art. And, I love the idea that that's something that he really felt he needed to prove. Like, you know, I'm tired of people talking really well about what I'm doing now. I'll show them. Well, I mean, did you see the uh, Astonishing X-Men 50 cover? This recreation of his issue one cover? No. If you look at the two side by side, you honestly would think they were flipped around in terms of chronology. Right. Yeah. Because the, the 50 the earlier, just younger artist. Yeah, the 51 just looks so much lazier and mm-hmm. just worse. Like, there's some odd perspective in it. It's just not as dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then you see the un- the Uncanny Avengers cover, which is terrible. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, r- have you found it online? I, I did. I just jumped over. To have you seen cool. Rogue's – like Rogue is missing the back of her head. Isn't she wearing like a hood on the, the she, back that – No, she is. But if you think about how hoods work, they cover up your heads. <laughs> they do not I, replace it. Yeah, that's true. I, I think she's actually missing that. one side of her head maybe. Yeah, she's I, missing I, the back yeah. of her head. There should be yeah. more head there. <laughs> it's just I, but do you see what I mean about the Havoc costume the Havoc costume is so mind-bogglingly ugly uh, you know honestly everything looks ugly this is really I, it's it's impressive that they really decided to draw it from A. such a dull angle and B. that you would come up with doing it at such a dull angle without working it out you know what I mean like it's really yeah that's mighty meh it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really horrible. And there's mm-hmm. so much – I mean you just look at it and you're like there's so much that's wrong with this comic. There, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that all the Avengers are on one side and all the X-Men are on another. Yes. It's terrible. <laughs> like if, if it's the idea is you know, this is the two teams mixed together, mm-hmm. having them like side-by-side division like that just seems really lazy. The fact that it's your two biggest names, then the two women, then the two you know, vaguely smaller names – Mm-hmm. It's really, really, I don't know, just everything about it is really lazy. It's well, a terrible, I, terrible I, cover. Honestly, you may call it lazy. I can see where as a concept, assuming that you don't know the concept, I feel like it communicates it. 
You know what I mean? Like you've got the uncanny and the Avengers part. And if I was looking at it in theory, if I knew enough about the characters, I, I, I you know, you don't really have to know much about the characters to know that one side of them is the X-Men, the other side are the Avengers and they're fighting together you're assuming because they're standing side by side and i just like i don't know how to describe this but i sort of feel like if it was made more uniform i suppose like it would just look like another big group of random glob of people you know what i mean like you could- i guess but I, I just feel there's something you could do that's more dynamic and actually makes this team up and also well, gets per- gets proportion right gets perspective right Star- yes. Scarlet Witch's head is too big for her body Rogue is missing the back of her head it's yeah, yeah, yeah. weirdest weirdest art I can't exactly. I cannot believe that an editor didn't look at that and be like you need to fix some of this oh yeah I, but then I again hope. have you seen the Marvel Now image the, the Jokasada promo image I've seen blurry camera phone shots of it or something it, from the it, EW piece or something yeah, if you see the actual image you it's mm-hmm. like all these horrible things jump out at you. Not least of which <laughs> that Marvel Girl is apparently tiny. She's in front of the Hulk, but she's smaller than Spider-Man who's standing on the back of the Hulk. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, there's Someone pointed out that Cable now has an eye patch over his human eye, which <laughs> would make sense. If you're thinking, well, he's using his cyborg eye because something's happened to his human eye. But in the end of the, what was it called? Uh, Extinction. Extinction, yeah. All of his robot parts got stripped out of him, didn't they? So he really only should have his human eye left. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's it really is like they're like, hey, everyone, get excited. And then they produce something and you're like, huh. Right. Well, I, th- I think that's it. I mean, I think more than anything else, my take on everything was just kind of like, huh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel, um, I think that the difference between Monkey Brain and Marvel, and admittedly, we're, we're running around in our own little digital-based world, but uh, is that there was genuine excitement about Monkey Brain. Like, genuine, genuine, like, people were like, oh, my God. This is this is really this could be a huge turning point. And then when you actually look at the books, I mean, I know I, I, most of our read, uh, listeners are probably on top of this sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'm certainly thinking of Jay Smitty here, who spent a lot of time talking in our comments about digital comics initiatives that that Monkey Brain seems to you know is seems very much in line with the sort of stuff that he was talking. But for those people who don't know, if you have access to um, especially a digital tablet, but even being able to read the stuff on your laptop or computer, um, Monkey Brain Comics has launched five titles uh, exclusively through Comixology. They are all relatively inexpensive. I think all of them are 99 cents except for Amelia Amelia Cole Cole. and and Aesop's Ark. They're both one ninety nine. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought Aesop's was at 99. But um, actually, they, you might be right. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I could probably jump over there and check. Yeah, that. you're right. Okay. Because the, the other 199 is Wander, the Kevin Church book that's launching in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, right. So, you can pick up a huge chunk of comics for, what was it, under $6? It's five ninety five. You can pick up all five launch books. For yeah. five ninety five, which is amazing value. 
Yeah, it, it is. And I have to say, I love them all. Of course, Adam Nave, who has been, you know, a longtime listener and supporter of this podcast, did a great job with Amelia Cole uh, writing that with DJ Kirkbride. But I got to say, uh, Bandit by Paul Tobin and Colin Coover is I love that book. Bandit is one of those entirely irresistible books, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's the one where you're reading. You're right. just like, oh, seriously? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just so much about it that I, I really, really, really appreciate. I think that's great. I, it's one of the things I don't think. Like, I can tell you that Aesop's Ark is the title I like least. But even mm-hmm. that, I'm like, this is not to my taste. Like, there's there's not a clunker in the bunch, mm-hmm. and I honestly go back and forth. I'm like, well, Amelia Cole is. I think Amelia Cole is amazing. I I yeah. really think it's it's. It's it's one of those things where I'm like, that's exactly what I want to read from a comic. It it's such a great idea and it's so well done. Yeah. Um and Nick Brokenshire's art is great for it. There's there's mm-hmm. something about it in particular I was like, this art is really adding to my enjoyment of the book as well. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I felt that about Amelia Cole. I but but unfortunately it's um it's so overshadowed for me by Colleen Coover. Like seriously, I'm like if well, there she, is she, a way, she steps up her work in that just by doing unbelievable, just by doing yeah. brush work, uh, the mm-hmm. ink work in the back, and then the colors on top. It really oh, is yeah. like holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Her her color palette in that was killing me. In fact, the thing that was great about that was that really was for whatever reason, Bandette was the book where I'm like. This feels like reading a 60s Marvel comic to me, like in this weird way that I think was the sweet spot of, you know, her illustration style, the fact that they had it broken down to, I think, a really standard, stable nine panel grid, I want to say, and just phenomenal. Maybe it was a six panel. Yeah, I want to say it might be six. I think think it might be six. But yeah. um, yeah. It's funny you say that because for me it's – and this is totally fed into what I was watching the other week. Um, mm-hmm. You've seen Charade, haven't you? The Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn film? Yes. It really reminded me of like an Audrey Hepburn romp. Mm-hmm. I, and that is, that is very much my sweet spot. Right. You give, right. Me, give me like you know, a, a Hitchcock parody with, with Audrey Hepburn in it and I'm mm-hmm. completely there. And it really did. I was like it's, it's you know, To Catch a Thief with Audrey Hepburn as you know, evil Nancy Drew – in costume. Yes. And it's like, how can you not like that? Yeah, yeah. But Especially it, when you just start getting that amazing style, the the art in there is just oh But again, I think I think the script is is great. The part where she's talking mm-hmm. to the dog is I I don't know what what it is. I don't know if it's just that I'm really simpatico to the way that Paul Tobin writes dialogue. Mm-hmm. But like the dialogue in Biden Woman, like the dialogue in Gingerbread Girl, I was just like, this is in no way realistic, but this is how I wish people in stories would talk all the time. Yes. It's like yeah, part exposition a with a really good mm-hmm. sense of humor. It's it's just – it's it's a beautifully elegant comic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, definitely for listeners out there who haven't gone and gotten it – uh, Bandette at ninety nine cents is almost literally a steal, and for a buck ninety nine, pick up Amelia Cole, which is absolutely solid sterling, top notch work. All of it is good. 
Edison mm-hmm. Rex, I think, is a, is a really – I thought – did you not think Dennis Culver's art was Venture Brothers-ish? I said this yes. in Comics Alliance today. I was like, that's what it reminds me of, the Venture Brothers. Yeah, exactly. And I haven't read the, haven't read the book yet, so I can't – I don't know how it – Oh, I, I, I totally like it. It's one of those things where to talk about what makes it great would be to ruin it. Yeah, like, it's very much like, why. you know, mm-hmm. there's a high concept that, is only, that only comes around at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a high concept I'd like. And, it's, and again, what it is, is it's not so much the high concept, which you've seen before. Mm-hmm. It's the execution of the high concept. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's approaching, not, I mean, I, it's not familiar enough to call it a trope, but it's definitely an idea that you've seen in a couple of places by now. Right. But it's the way that it approaches it. That you're like, this feels fresher than all those other takes I've read in this before. Hmm. Um, I likened it somewhere, I think it might have been blog ad, to a Pixar story. Oh, yeah, I think you did. I, 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 don't know, I don't know if that's entirely apt. The more I think about it, the more I'm, I'm thinking maybe, maybe Pixar isn't the right thing. But there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really smart all-ages sensibility about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not... But really modernized, as in it's very aware of the stereotypes and the cliches that it's playing with. Mm-hmm. So that even even when it perpetuates them, mm-hmm. it does it in such a way that not only does it let you know that it knows that you've seen this before, right? But it does it in in with such a self awareness that you can't help but be sucked in again. Hmm. And so, yeah, I, I really liked Edison Rex. And I really liked October Girl, which surprised the hell out of me because when I started it, I was like, this is Amelia uh, Pond from Doctor Who. I, oh. I Honestly, like the first couple of pages, I was like, this is Mark Dow Smith, whose art I love and have loved for a really, really long time. I thought mm-hmm. that he was a, a severely underrated artist all the way back to um, Day of Judgment, which is the crossover event he did with Jeff Johns in like 1998, 1999. Mm-hmm. Like a long time ago. Um, but I was like, oh, he, he's seen Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who and he really liked it. And so he's writing it again. Mm. Um, but by the end of it, I was like, oh, no, he's taking influence from it. But he's not just stealing from it. Right. He, want, he has a place that he wants to go. Yeah. And there's, there's something about it. It's such – all the other books I feel are very much like, this is us. Ta-da. That you are like, I'm bored or I'm not. Really. Right. On. And I think October Girl is going to be the one, like, three issues in. Mm-hmm. You'll be like, you know, I was picking this up because it was cheap and because I thought it was going somewhere. But now I realize where it's going and I really love it. Mm. Because it's a slow burn book. A slow burn book. Well, let's hope so. I mean, that's... Anyway, yeah. I... The entire line, I think, the entire line is, is it's astonishingly great. I love its cheapness. I love that there's only one superhero story in it. Mm-hmm. Oh God, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that's just so remarkable about it too is is that it's it's a it's a widespread of different types of comics, and I'm really kind of I don't know. I'm thrilled. I feel like weirdly that is what a lot of creators want to be doing now, and what a certain segment of readers really want to be reading right now, and. Yes. And and they're you know finally there's steps being taken to figure out how to fill in, how to connect how to connect when it's unfortunate but the direct marketplace has been kind of a, a rough way to get those 
pieces to come together, I guess. Yeah. So what what I feel about Monkey Brain is it's really complicated because the the first day was they're so successful and they're like, okay, we're releasing the books two days early because people want to read them. Mm-hmm. Um, so my feelings about it are, are totally mixed in with the books and the reaction to the books. But overall, I just can't help you feel like this is a victory for something mm-hmm. and something good. Yeah. Beyond that, I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> but it's, just, it's like, <laughs> we win. I don't know what we win. <laughs> I right. don't know who we are, but it feels like this is a we win situation. Well, I think so. I think so. For those of, for God knows, I'm certainly, um, how do I put this? A soft touch for the uh, team comics side of things. So yeah, there's part of me where it's like, yeah, woo, team comics. But you know, um, we'll see. I mean, you know, it's kind of like it launched fantastically. The the trick has got to be, I think, having, yeah, maintaining it and having it hit its rhythm and having these people come back and have, have, you know, and by these people, I mean both the people producing the books and the people buying the books. So, if there's one thing that makes me nervous about Monkey mm-hmm. Brain, it's that I feel that in everything I've seen about it, I'm mm-hmm. guilty of this as well. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a, and the next issue is out now. Yes. And I feel that that's going to be the trick. If people yeah. pick up issue two and they understand the schedule, mm-hmm. then. You know, great, right? But if they don't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you start losing people. And I think that's that's going to be because it it did it launched really well. Mm-hmm. But the trick is going to be getting people to come back for issue two. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's going to be. And I don't know. I mean, I assume I haven't mucked around with comicsology much, but can you set it to? Give, send, a, you know, a pop-up, an alarm, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess you don't really read yours on the iPad. But on, on the iPad, of course, you can turn on alarms or badges for apps. Um, and so Comixology will have a like, hey, you know, check out our new comic sale if you've got the alert on. And it would be great if there was something that would allow that for new issues for individual books, and I, I'm not really sure whether or not you can or do. I, I've I've never heard that. Is. That would be a great idea. Yeah, but I've not seen it. Yeah, that is one of those things where I'll, I'll have to look into it. I, I think, unfortunately, it's just a generic. Oh no! Yeah, like uh, for for yeah, most of the books, it has a little button that says "Add Alert." For oh, example, that, that's great. Yeah, so let me see if I can go and, and do that with my copy of Bandit, for example. Um, hmm, interestingly, yep, there we go. Okay, I'm hitting the add alert. Okay, I've got an alert on it. Hopefully that means something, but I'll let you know. And speaking of all this, Graham, I'm sure you know uh, the second issue of Double Barrel is out today. I was just uh, about to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really was. I was like, while we're talking about second issues, we should say that second issue of Double Barrel is out. I haven't read it, but I've got it. Yeah, unfortunately, it came out today because, interestingly enough, comic books came out today on Comixology, even though though they came out yesterday. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of nice. I don't, I didn't, you know, nobody seemed to be burning down the internet over it. So I think that that's. A good sign, but yeah. Um, so Double Barrel was out. Yeah, I just found out about it this morning and haven't had a chance to even even buy it and read it. But um, you know, uh, but people, it's out there and it's a hundred pages for a dollar ninety nine. I'm looking forward to picking it up and talking to 
you, Graham, next week about it so that we can see how it measures up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Also, have you seen talking about things that are out from, um, is it Top Shelf? A one ninety nine. You see that James Kachalka's American Elf is being reissued for one ninety nine. Yes, but it was just nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, exactly. It's, they're doing it year by year. Okay, okay. Because it looked like it was a sample year. I didn't know if they were going to do that with all of those. I but I think think that's... they're just doing it year by year. I could be yeah. wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the uh, digital version of American Elf will be brought to you in handy year by year editions, issued regularly oh, over the months to come with all new covers. Great. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. It's kind of rough because I actually loved American Elf so much. I bought it in multiple formats. <laughs> so I'm I'm honestly unsure of whether I'm going to like try and throw money at it in a digital edition. Knowing me, I probably will. I, I will when it catches up with the ones I have. Right, exactly. That's kind of how I feel, sort of. It's like, uh, I don't... It's And it's interesting, because American Elf, uh, despite my talking like this about it, I, I assume that you feel the same way that I do, Graham, which is just that it's kind of a, a really delightful read. Like, it's one of those, like... It's the one James Kachalka thing I like. Yeah, exactly. Even him, if you don't like him. I find earth-shatteringly twee otherwise. Yes, uh, I, I like it. I, I do find him overwhelmingly, offensively. Hey, raindrops, farts. Yeah. You know, and and I nope. like I that's I'm like this sets my teeth on edge so much. American Elf the Diary. I have no idea mm-hmm. why. It completely works for me. Oh yeah, I I think because he doesn't have time to um, to be tweet to get in and what? do the story, get the joke and get out. Yeah, like he usually has time to be just either a little twee or he has time to get the joke or he, or sometimes it's literally just conveying the situation in which he's in and what's uh, notable about it, really. But yeah, otherwise, like you said, it's like oh, raindrops and farts and raindrop farts. And then it's like eight pages riffing on raindrop farts. And he just does not have that in American Elf. He doesn't have that luxury. And uh, the work is just so much better for it. Yes. You know? I completely, 100% agree with you on that one. By the way, before I forget, Bandette set up on a three-tier grid. So, but really, most of the time at about five panels per page, sometimes six. Take that, Alan Moore. Yes. Oh, and can we talk about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's Century 2009? Sure. I haven't read it, but you have. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, Graham, I liked it, which is interesting considering how much I really did not like uh, either 1909 or 1969. Okay, why did Um, you like it? The reason why I like it is that I felt that it had a point, honestly, um, to it that that I didn't feel like I kind of went, oh, right, this sort of, I see, almost felt that it justified what was going on in the previous volumes. Now I was talking with Hibbs about this a little bit and he kind of disagreed with me for, for reasons that I, I will hopefully get into touch on. But the, the reason why I like 2009 was um, do, how much do you know of what happens in it? I suppose this is where I'm going to have. To I, I, I know the, territory. Oh, you can completely spoil me as far as I'm okay. concerned. Um, I know the, broad strokes okay yeah so it the the super broad strokes of it are 
that the league, which has been disassembled in 1969, uh, manages to get its act together back in 2009. Orlando manages to get Mina Harker, who had, uh, as we saw, being dragged out into an institution in, in at the end of 1969. Um, and the two of them, having been through serious amounts of shit, have to try and uh, get their act together in order to stop uh, the new Antichrist, which... Um, okay, so here comes the part that, that, again, heavy spoilers for the listeners, and uh, I, I don't think, I, I'm sure that it's the stuff that you know, Graham, but, you know, essentially they go to find the Antichrist, who is, as far as I can tell, basically a Harry Potter uh, analog, um, who is sort of a confused power crazed kid who uh, in the process of beginning to wipe everyone and everything out ends up being um, defeated by a Mary Poppins analog who is essentially God, I guess. (laughs) And that part is, I'll be honest, I'm not going to lie. There's something that's great about that. Uh, Their presentation of Mary Poppins is weird and really creepy because they keep, you know, Kevin O'Neill keeps focusing in on the, the parrot head on her umbrella, you know, which is just desiccated and creepy looking. Um, but she herself is kind of, um, you know, drawn very sort of mysteriously. And it, first off, it's visually great, but coming on the heels of everything else that happens, because the other big spoiler is Alan Quartermain, who is at the end of 1969 in the process of slipping away into essentially infinite heroin addiction um, is, you know, Mina and Orlando go to recruit him and he just essentially cannot. Uh, He shows up at the end to try and help and he ends up being uh, killed. And in the scene that I think is actually pretty great um, is because I think he's the one who actually does get blasted by, I want to say it's Harry, Harry Potter's fire penis. Yeah. His, the, it's, it's the lightning cock of Harry Potter actually uh, incinerates uh, Alan Quartermain. And one of the things that's great is when he dies, his last words are something along the lines of, Mm, ooh. Uh, it's, it's on the very last page, I think. Is it? It's no, it's not. He j- he says something along the lines t- to Mina where he's like, "I, you know, I just wanted to be, you know, your hero, you know." And uh, how do I put this? So, what ends up happening is the the weird occultist who has summoned uh, Oliver Haddo, the the strange Crowley analog, who has summoned the Antichrist. Um, which is Harry Potter who ends up getting defeated. He basically ends up cursing and swearing at the league at Mina Harker specifically for uh, um, being. So Oliver Haddo says, you've robbed me of my apocalypse. And Mina Harker says, wait, do you mean we've averted Armageddon? And he says, of course not. The strange and terrible new eon is unavoidable, but not the one that I anticipated. I'm not to be its harbinger. That honor falls to you. Congratulations. And then, as Mina's like, what do you mean? She gets pulled away from Orlando and, and the Oliver Haddo's lost in the flames. So, and, but my whole point here is, is that 
the death of Alan Quartermain and specifically the very last page that shows him being buried in sort of this elephant graveyard of other white, great white hunter heroes. Like you literally see the last page of him and it's his grave next to the grave of uh, Richard Seymour and Tarna, the jungle boy and uh, all, all these other white imperialist figures. Um, to me really is like, oh, like weirdly Moore's, I feel like Moore's excesses can kind of be forgiven in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Century because he's really talking about the necessity to kill the great white hunter, I guess. That that the that the idea of the idea of the century that that he says is terrible and has wrecked everything isn't so much pop culture, although he you know, he talks about its what's lurking in, in the heart of pop culture, which is the idea that it's the white guy that's the hero, you know? Um, and he really does try and finish this volume with Mina Harker and Orlando, you know, a woman and a, a very transgendered human uh, being sort of the core and bringing the new core values into the new century. Um, and I thought that that was... You know, I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you've read enough Alan Moore, uh, I think anyone was going to think like, A, okay, the apocalypse can't be avoided. It, things are just going to continue on new, but with a subtle difference or or with a, you know, I mean, that's that's his theme. Like, you know, that is something that's at the core of every one of Alan Moore's great works is the concept of how one person brings about the apocalypse and what that apocalypse literally means and Mm -hmm. it's usually a a transformative um gesture in nature you know whether that's you know the destruction that v brings in v for vendetta or even the century that william goal you know brings in uh at from hell you know he's he's, i feel like moore's always writing about antichrist and in that sense league of extraordinary gentlemen century doesn't really say anything new that he wasn't saying in promethea but Mm -hmm. i feel like it's a really interesting companion piece to Promethea in that sense, because I feel like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is Moore's way to kind of tell that story, but from inside the, inside the narrative, inside the white guy's narrative, which is pop culture, I suppose. And okay. so it ended up being enjoyable. Was that incredibly boring for you? No, I, uh, I, I find myself – it's one of those things where I find myself wanting to reject your point, but I've not read the comic. <laughs> well, com- why would- because what it sounds like to me is you're saying, mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy two-thirds of this story. Right. But what I think he was trying to say is worthwhile to me. The, the point is more worthwhile than the experience of the story itself. Uh, that's part of it. And, and I, I, I like instinctively reject that because I, well, I just feel that there's so many stories that mean well, but are bad. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. if you make that argument, then all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, he meant <laughs> well, it doesn't matter that this is terrible. Do you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden, right. all like every single shitty story, as long as it has a reasonably all right message, you're like, well, he tried his best, poor thing. Yes. And I feel well, that that's a really – I feel at that point you're looking for reasons to not say, I didn't like this. 
as opposed yeah, to yeah, I can see that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I think I I think that's a really weak argument to defend a piece of art with because sure. if you look far enough in almost all arts, there's something admirable to be found in the intent. Hmm. So you say. I my thing is is that <laughs> I was, I'm I, like here's my construct argument. And you're like eh, whatever. <laughs> Well, I, I think one thing worth pointing out is is that um, it, it's not the it's not the uh, the cart leading the horse. I did I ended up enjoying the book as I read it, and and it was more enjoyable than sure, but he, the first two volumes. So you, there's that. There was the enjoyment of it, and I guess in a, in a similar way, the meaning of it kind of retroactively washed the bad taste out of my mouth for the first two books, you know? And that's I'm not necessarily part, that's saying... That's the part I'm interested in. Right. Washed the bad taste out of my mouth for the first two books. Right. Like, it's one thing for you to say, I think this was a better... I think the third volume was better than the other than the first two. Sure. I've got no problem with that. Mm-hmm. It's when you then go, well, when I got to the point, it's okay what he did with the first couple of volumes that I didn't enjoy because he meant well. Well, I'm not saying it's because he meant well per se. I just feel like, well, there, there's two flip sides. One is sometimes you've got a movie that's completely boring for the first two thirds, and the last third is so good that you forgive the first two parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other part of it is sometimes you have a piece of art where you're frustrated with it because you're not meeting it, you're not experiencing it, you're not enjoying the way that you're experiencing it, and then it's after the fact that you realize that, to an extent, it, you were you were essentially doing it wrong. Like the last piece of the puzzle is like, oh, okay, so it's not this; it's actually this, you know. And I just I felt that that worked for me. I mean, I, it there are still problems with Century all the way through. Not the least of which is Alan Moore has literally become. Uh, 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 a, a shadow of his former self. I mean, it reads like it's uh, work being written by uh, a somewhat talented Alan Moore wannabe than an actually Alan Moore anymore. And I, I assume that that... What's, what's the difference? I'm curious in that. Uh, that's a good question. I would say that the difference in it is that it feels... When Moore is doing work that feels like him or when an artist is doing work that feels like themselves, uh, it feels vibrant. And after a while, it's that kind of like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is going through the motions. Like there's just something that's not as fresh anymore. You know what I mean? And so it's sometimes that can happen through the repetition of you know, like like by now, the fact that it's I'm really tired of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and the fact that the idea that there might be more books is kind of like a, a kind of a eh for me. But I remember when it first that first League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, some of the storytelling tr- tr- things, Moore's f- familiar storytelling ticks being funneled through Kevin O'Neill was resulting in some absolutely fantastic art you know and 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 it felt it felt vibrant and there's time the difference weirdly between vibrant and stale is kind of hard because it's art in theory it doesn't necessarily age but all i can say is that yeah there were times here where even as Moore was telling his story it was too easily he's too easily pleased with his rhythms or his cameos or his like you could almost write the beginning of a scene and know if you knew 
sort of what the point of the scene was supposed to be, you yourself could write the scene the way that Alan, you knew Alan Moore was going to write it. You know what I mean? There's not. No, I, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. So what it makes me think is, mm-hmm. it sounds to me like what you're describing is something we've actually talked about before with uh, less revered creators. Uh huh. We talked about uh, Bendis and Malieve working together, and and the the magic going out of that collaboration. Right. Yes. Or or uh, Morrison and Quietly. Mm-hmm. Is it the same thing? Is it that familiarity breeds contempt? That it's not necessarily that they have got that the art has gotten worse, but that the shock of the new is gone, and you become so accustomed to the rhythms that you're like, oh, they're doing that thing again. Right. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because, of course, I'm like, I actually feel that uh, I, I, I'm a little more conflicted about it because I feel like Bendis is one of those guys for whom the quality has actually literally dropped. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like it's that I'm bored with him. But, yeah, I do think that there's a way in which it's not just the fact that per se, that the the shock of the new is gone. It's just like, as I said, if you wanted me to sit, I mean, I pretty much list gave you a quick list of the idea of the apocalypse in Alan Moore's work. You know, in a way, there's not anything that's new here. I think what happened, what worked for me was the idea is that in a way, almost in a way that felt subtle, in a way that Alan Moore's work has not felt for a while, it, I felt like, oh, okay, there's a point going on to this that you can discern and that there's a, a real reason and a logic at work to it. Um, and, and I guess that was sort of what helped it, was like at this point in Alan Moore's work, I really would have expected him to really draw in big marker on the, you know, in the back of one of the panels, like the great white hunter must die and, you know, underline it two or three times, you know, but here it's, it's actually sort of a small accumulation of um, details throughout the books. And you kind of have that, I don't know, you, you kind of get back to seeing why Moore is, is taking the tack that he does. And that sort of felt new and fresh to me in a way that the rest of the stuff didn't, I suppose. But yeah, there's an element of surprise there that I think that you want to have. Like when when writers are on fire, you can see them do something that they've done a million times before, but they're doing something new with it. And that's that's like this stunning, brilliant thing. Like, I don't know, maybe you'll feel differently, but I thought Batman Incorporated number two was an amazing comic, you know, and that was pretty much Grant Morrison doing all everything that Grant Morrison has tried has been trying to do for years or been doing with various degrees of success. But I finally felt like he and probably with the help of Chris Burnham, like really nailed that sort of hyper compressed narrative that he's been trying to do for some time now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um but when, when I was talking about something new, I was meaning within the collaboration, the shock of the new, where you, oh. you see, you know, writer mm-hmm. X and artist Y, and they are in such, because I think that that's, I feel that's partially what Batman Inc. 2 really benefited from, that mm-hmm. Morrison and Burnham are still relatively fresh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, I don't know, I just feel that if that very script had been drawn by Quietly, it would have right. been technically perfect, but it wouldn't have had the same oomph. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's a part where you become so accustomed to a collaboration or mm-hmm. to uh, an approach for a single creator, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. that even if they're doing something that had you been dropped in at that point, mm-hmm. and you were a, but you were exactly the same person, mm-hmm. you would have had a much greater surprise from, and you would have gotten much more from. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I see your point. And I think that's, I think that's a good point. There's part of me that sort of wants to, to, um, argue about it, it, it because I think there, there's probably a, um, <laughs> this is really funny, sort of the same way that my like formalist apologia for uh for more for for work that as long as it has a meaning gets a pass from me that this sort of feels like i like okay so creators can get a pass as long as they're continuing to you know i don't know do new stuff or stretch themselves outside their zone or something like that to to keep you you know to keep you on your toes but i'm you know i'm not really sure that. Well, I, I think I, guess, I think what I'm arguing is the opposite. The creators can do something new that keeps them on their toes. But if we are already familiar enough with their old tricks, then it will seem mm-hmm. less spectacular. Well, that there, yeah, that is true. But uh, it's tough because I'm not sure if that's how I feel with Morrison and Quitely or uh, with Moore and O'Neill. Um, I don't know. That's actually a, that. It's it's a good. It's a good point. I I don't know. Do you have like another example of somebody no, I, that might I, I be don't, taking? I, and I'm not even necessarily sure that I believe in this one. It's right. Just, it's just I find myself as a reader mm-hmm. curiously. Um, if I have had a really positive experience with a collaboration or with a single creator, where I've mm-hmm. really had one of those holy shit moments. Yeah. Exactly. That it's not enough for them to continue that level of. Quality. I want that mm-hmm. experience again. Mm. So that if they're just continuing to do incredibly good work, that I mm. will nonetheless at some point feel disappointed by that incredibly good work because it is not giving me the holy shit. Uh, but if I then go back and reread it like years later, mm-hmm. I'd be like, this is great. And this is as good as the earlier stuff. And I was judging it more harshly because it was not giving me the emotional response I wanted. Yeah, probably. I mean, I can I can see where we're all where that can happen. I sort of feel that um that an artist and a and a readership if it works well, it's kind of it's kind of like a love affair. And so, you know, there's kind of that stage where it goes from being sort of the sexy new exciting fling and become something where you ha- it's not as exciting but there's a um there's the th- the, yeah the history and the thrill of knowing the other person so to speak yeah no i I, I i totally understand that mm-hmm. so and i think the problem with for a lot of people like me who were fans of more was through the first two volumes of league of extraordinary gentlemen century it really felt a lot like uh you know, you're a little worried about how soon it is before, you know, your your partner here ends up in a home of some sort, you know, because. <laughs> oh, that relationship worry I've always had to deal with. <laughs> 
so I just find myself being, you know, with, with Moore's work, the first two volumes were, I mean, there were things that I didn't like, but even, even as it approached, because I felt 1969 had a lot of stuff done with just an amazing technical brio, uh, I was left so, so very, very cold. Um, and, and again, part of it, part, you know, in some ways it, it didn't, help that the technical brio was something that Moore had um, already accomplished and accomplished better earlier in his career. But it just also felt very empty. And now looking at it, I'm like, oh, you know what? I feel like I can sit down and see why Moore did the things that he did in Century Parts 1 and 2 that I wrote off as um, more frenzied sort of metafictional name dropping, I guess, you know, now I'm kind of like, Oh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, ultimately I don't really disagree with you. I was playing devil's Mm -hmm. advocate a lot because I can think of many times where I've said, you know, this reads better in trade. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like this reads completely differently as a collection and it's ultimately the same thing. When I can write the whole thing in total, I get a different Mm -hmm. experience, which will be more more positive or more negative. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that that's the case with Century. Again, it's weird. I feel very maybe I'm just too strongly married to my um, to my initial opinions or my snap judgments. But there is part of me that that's like uh, that knows that you're absolutely right and have had that experience. But I'm I'm still somewhat leery to discuss it. I guess maybe because in a way, wait, there's... you're leery to discuss what? Uh, sorry, Larry, to discuss the idea of re- of reading something in trade or going revisiting something later on and being very like, like, oh, this is fine. Like, you know, because part of me is like, well, if that's the case, why am I really bothering to A, read the floppies, but especially B, talk about them? You know what I mean? Where it's like giving my opinion or feedback on something, you know, part of me is like, well, the piece has to stand on its own. But if it really can't or shouldn't in order for the whole piece to work, like, shouldn't I technically shut up and go home? You know what I mean? So I well, think I'm very. No, because here's the thing things can work really well in collection that don't work well in singles. Mm-hmm. But because they're originally released in singles and they're their creators and publishers are asking for you to accept them as that and pay money right. for them as that. You can yes. all you can judge them twice. You can say this was a failure as a single issue, mm-hmm. but in the larger scheme of things, it worked. Like those are not essential. Those are not contradictory statements. No, I, you're absolutely right. I guess I worry about the marketplace being a place where saying it in the first case can actually injure the thing's chances. In the second case, I suppose. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I can see that. It's but it's because of the weird nature of the market. Mm-hmm. You have to judge them as both. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I agree with you because the market um, asks you to it doesn't ask you to, to buy, buy them twice. Yeah, yeah exactly. so I was going to say. I was going to say it doesn't mm-hmm. ask you to buy them twice, but it kind of does. It gives you two mm-hmm. different formats in which to experience the story, and yes. therefore judging them in both is completely right. valid. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hey, here's an idea, Graham McMillan. Yes. What, what would you do? What do you think? Bar. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do for a Klondike bar? No, I just kind of had this thought, idea of like, wow, what would you do if you like pub, self-published a comic 
in singles and told essentially everyone who collected like whatever the goddamn codes or whatever that they would get a digital copy of the trade free. You know, like that whole idea of like, gee, I wonder if you could get someone to invest in some sort of model like that where it's like, oh, hey, you got, you know, you would never do it because, of course, the trades are are where you really get the income, you know, the money stream, so to speak. Oh, but you, you're always you always see people trying to incentivize the trade. The uh, singles. Yeah. So you get Brubaker saying, you know, I'm going to have essays that are not going to be in the finished collection. Or you mm-hmm. have Brian Wood's new series, The Massive has additional in-story material, which, did you buy the first issue of The Massive? I didn't. I, you I you read... didn't miss anything, my friend. What I was yeah. going to say is the, the additional in-story material was mm-hmm. f- amazing filler. Yeah. By which See, I mean, it was really filler, not it was filler that was amazing. Um, it re- it <laughs> Thank really you for was, clarifying. It really was <laughs> kind of offensive. <laughs> that makes sense. Like, so it really had been like, this is in-story material that will be really important. And, you know, you're not going to get it in the trades. And it does nothing to add to the experience of the issue. It's well, world think... building. If you're mm-hmm. really, if you're interested in the minutia of the world. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where you can't really add that, that much because your trade is going to be your long-lasting thing. So you're not going to be like, and here's a plot point that really changes everything. Because <laughs> you can't, do you know what I mean? Like right, that, right. You're you're hurting the collection at that point, and you can't hurt the collection. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, you get lots of people trying to incentivize the, the the singles, and I don't see why saying if you buy all of these and you can present me with all six codes, I will give you a mm-hmm. digital edition of the trade. I don't see mm-hmm. why that's a problem. It's. Because you're, I, I, you're, you're gambling that mm-hmm. enough people who buy all six are mm-hmm. also going to buy trade. And I'm not sure well, that's, yes. I'm not sure there's a massive thing of that, especially if you then issue the trade in print. Right. Because if they want that, they'll still have to buy it. You've given them a digital right. version. Right. Well, and that's true. And maybe if you did something so that the codes, each of the codes were some sort of crazy one-time only kind of thing so that they couldn't be reused guess that would be something uh oh no it's something to think about it was just it's also something that i'm not necessarily um because the number of people who do talk about the fact that they don't see money until this thing goes into trade you know um and and i think i i'd like to say that i think ed brubaker is one of those people who said that they don't really they don't see it they make sure that the money's there to pay the artist but they don't really see any money until after the trade comes out well i mean think about fractions with casanova as well he didn't mm-hmm. start seeing money in casanova until it had gone through the first series and the second series in image and the first collection and the first series and second series being reprinted at marvel yeah, like, yeah. that's amazing <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's a that's a lot to have to move through, and I think that's uh, you know I've heard that sort of thing from other people. Uh, gosh, I feel like there's a, but, like but oh, thought, which reminds me. Yes. Oh, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say no, 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 no. You should continue. Why? Well, I, I was just going to say that you're in, by incentivizing the singles in that mm-hmm. way. Are you are you actually incentivizing the singles? In doing that, are you going to convince people who weren't going to buy it in single issues to buy it in single issues? Right. Do you know what I mean? It becomes a really weird thing. Do it, mm-hmm. is what you do? Do you say buy it in single issues and then we'll give you a money off voucher towards a, a collected edition? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, is is there is there a way of doing that? I don't know. 
But even then, yeah. I feel like, again, you're almost – you're kind of playing with the audience because you're kind of like, okay, Biden singles, but it's, you know, it's intended for a big collected edition and we read it in once. Right, right. Which is well, a strange thing. I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is to that at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it is it's very confusing to figure out sort of where that I guess where that line lies. I mean, there there's a real interesting thing in the I guess in a way, you could it could be argued that for a long time the the trade paperback and the singles, yeah, are literally going to two different groups entirely. You know, the singles are being are being bought by retailers and sold to the readers, uh and then the digital trades uh, the trades are even even as they are they have other options at that point to make it into other areas of the marketplace you know you, mm-hmm. you, could, you couldn't sell a, a couldn't sell a single issue of fatal um through you know the booksellers but you could sell the first trade paperback to libraries for example well why don't you flip it what if you digitally published your single issues right and put a code in there that you could then enter into a website and get a money off voucher for the print collected edition. Well, I, I hope that that, uh, that could be something that I, you know, I, I would like to hope that somebody like monkey brain might think of something like that going forward. Cause I do think it'll be interesting to see if they continue to fulfill their promise of, you know, those people publishing books digitally as, you know, again, sort of this weird new test market, you know, seeing where, how that stuff makes the transition into like the direct market or as trades, that might be a good way to incentivize it because, you know, in theory being digital, you know, digital first, they may not, there may not be a, uh, as strong of a developed marketplace in the direct market for it when it comes time, you know, there may be, there may not be like people might be, why should I buy this trade? I've already read all the digital singles, so. Uh, oh, but do you even aim it at the direct market? Well, like, do, do you do you find because and I'm maybe horrifically misunderstanding, but my understanding mm-hmm. was Monkey Brain essentially only takes digital publishing rights. Right. So, what if Bandit can get a publishing deal, a print publishing deal through Scholastic? Mm-hmm. Right, which is I'm sure is the case. So, and that would I, I mean. Not necessarily with Bandet, but yeah, I'm sure you're right. That you'd have to either self-publish or you could take the material into other other venues. But yeah, I think there's – hopefully there's the consideration that if you can't move that in another segment of the market, you've got to try and move it into the direct market without – because this is one of those things that, that I know that Hibbs spent a lot of time you know, when I was grilling him about it through the months – where he was very much like, you know, one of the best promotional materials you can have for your trade paperback is your single issue, you know? And so he was very much of the thing of like, don't, you know, if you really want to break into the market and you want to have the the retailers support you, have a regular ongoing title that is, you know, reliable, comes out every month that gives them, you know, essentially something to hand sell and build um, an audience for because building an audience for something where the end result is just a trade paperback for a, you know, a five issue miniseries is, is, you know, there's less of a, 
perfect scenario there as opposed to something like Walking Dead where people can hand sell it month after month for the single issues and then people start jumping in on the trades. So it may be a weird situation where you've got something like Bandette. I mean, in a way, uh, it's no different almost from Gingerbread Girl, I suppose, except that, that Tobin and Coover can get paid on the individual issues and hopefully see enough money that it underwrites that cost. But, you know, arguably... There are, there are those retailers who would say, you know what, if you had given me 12 months of Bandette self-published, I would have been able to push that, those, hand sell those issues, and I would already have an audience and ready for the trade. Hmm. That's all I say to that. <laughs> In large well, part because I just had to put my mic on mute, so I coughed. Oh, I, I, okay. I, I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I see the logic of what you're saying. I just, I don't know. I feel that that's one of the cases where the, the business side is distorting the artistic side, or or the, mm-hmm. the format suddenly overrules the work, and I'm always mm-hmm. very suspicious of that. I, I think that, and we, you and I have had this conversation in the past. That which has the longer-lasting critical acclaim and also sales velocity Mm -hmm. is not a continuing series. It's a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, look at Watchmen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Well, look at Watchmen, but look at Walking Dead. We've really got to look at Walking Dead as something that's rewritten that. You know what I mean? Or... Well, we don't know for sure, but, but, it, but I mean, written that Walking Dead could be a, a Walking Dead could be an anomaly. Mm-hmm. No, I know, but because what uh, other book has done Walking Dead? Right. Well, and the answer is really none of them. I mean, because that's, ultimately, that, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Right. Well, but because you can't you point to other individual one-off books that have mm-hmm. had a long-lasting sales velocity. But you can't point to another Walking Dead. You, you just can't. There isn't one out well, there. But, okay, well, my thing is is that I, I've got to split it up into a couple of different areas. One is is that I feel that the Vertigo series tend to fall somewhere in between what I'm talking about with Walking Dead and what you're talking about um, because they are – they're you know, they're, they're – made like they're one story, but really there are many arcs within that one story that then wraps up within like five years or 60 issues or whatever it is it takes for the people to, to go there. Sure. But of course, you know, um, there's a lot of manga that seems to have that same situation going on as with The Walking Dead, where there's continuing volumes, there is serialization that's ongoing, but there's also a sense that the that the series has an endpoint and an exit point. You know, with manga, the that endpoint or exit point sometimes is due to the, you know, the the creator wanting to do something else. Sometimes it's due to suddenly it's just not the sales aren't there anymore and it's got to be wrapped up. But um, you know, in the American market, Walking Dead is an anomaly. Uh and what's important, but so is Watchmen in its way. You know what I mean? Like I kind of feel like we're in this sort of gray area where like if we're looking at sales watchmen and the walking dead i would say are both kind of at the top of the grade of what they do in terms of i i would say that you know as far as a standalone graphic novel you you i doubt that there's one in the american market as successful as watchmen 
you know, but you know it but isn't it in its own way sort of an anomaly you know we start getting into these weird points of like once you cross off all the books by alan moore off the list how many success, really super crazily successful one off volumes are there you know and does well, the I was going to I, material come from cuz i was thinking yeah. like your mouses your persepolis your fun mm-hmm. home you know mm-hmm. not not you know mainstream quote unquote graphic novels right. but but books that have a sustained sales success over a large period of time. And they don't sell in the volume The Watchman does. Right. But they have sold for a long enough period of time at enough sure. of a level. Whereas mm-hmm. I don't think you've got – I don't think you even have another one of those for The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Well, it's tough because what I would do is I would start changing the nature of my argument to start saying, <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Listen to me. In that I would say, well, when you come up with that, I would just change what I was saying. And I would no, say, no, 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 well, no, no, have no, no, you no. considered? I, at that point, I would say that, yeah, something like Preacher, you know, could have run that long if the creators had wanted to. And that we would have books that are more like Walking Dead than not. Walking Dead is an anomaly, but... It, it's because it's the f- the first, you know what I mean? Like we may be like back back in 86, you know, there were only three trade paperbacks to really talk about in the, or 88 when it was Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and, and Mouse. Yeah. You know, so we could be at the very, very start of an era. Like okay, but when that. did Walking Dead start? Well, you know, a hundred issues ago, so like seven years ago, or what? Uh, no, wait, my math has got to be bad. Assuming that they shipped on time, what nine years ago? Okay, so let's say that instead of saying we're in nineteen eighty eight, we're mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety five. Mm hmm. What is uh, like? You know, is there more to? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to think of a, a, a if there is a if there is a parallel. Right, and, I, and well, I, I, I'm not even sure. I think the historical part starts with mm-hmm. that as well, because there mm-hmm. wasn't a trade paperback market. Like it was building a trade paperback market, as opposed to Walking Dead, which has a trade paperback market. It has a trade paperback market, but how do I put this? But people aren't creating for that market yet. You know what no, I mean? No, but I'm, like, I'm saying that it's not as if when people created Watchmen, or or Mouse, or or. Dark Knight, there was a, and then we'll have our OGN bookstore market. Like those, those were beyond anomalies. But when Walking Dead started, there that there was that. Admittedly, it was dominated by a different type of title, but that well, still existed. Like it didn't create a format. I guess is what I'm saying. It took, well, I, it took advantage of and found its main success in a format that already existed. And so I'm not sure. Well, that, I'm not sure the two are analogous. Well, yeah, they're not. Well, I don't think that there are perfect analogies, but I think that there's there's ways in which you could say that similar to the way that the first wave of paperbacks came out in 88 and it took a long time for the marketplace to actually catch up. um, I think that there could be a completely different size and scale for how long it takes uh, the what because unlike unlike uh, Watchmen that came out over the course of like a year. Then there's the graphic novel 
then you start seeing the sales. You know, it's not until 91 or 92 that you start having retailers say, like, look, if we had these stores, you know, if you guys collected and put these out, we would be able to sell these, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it was really an idea that came late, came after the graphic novels themselves, where but, it was like, hey, these are continuing to turn. But that's so what I'm saying. That, that's why I'm saying it's it's so it, the differences between, like, the analogy is so imperfect that I'm not sure it tracks. Because well, yes. Watchmen and everything had to build that, like, that market had to be, that market in that form had to be created. Mm-hmm. And that took time, as opposed to that market in that format existed for what. Dead. It was but the I, place when Walking Dead launched, so would it not, not take less time? No, it would take more time because it takes a longer period of time for you to see the rewards for it. Because the difference for Walking Dead isn't um, Walking Dead. The closest you see to Walking Dead is something like the Vertigo model, where you have issues being sold. Um, and trade paperbacks coming out. But the difference seems to be that as Vertigo continued to um, release issues and release trades, the the sales of the individual issues went down. What you're seeing in Walking Dead, as far as I can tell, is even though it's in a, in a six-issue wave, you're actually seeing the sales on the title go up relatively consistently. Now, whether or not that is a factor of Walking Dead being an anomaly or it has to do with because Walking Dead is creator-owned, Kirkman was able to made it a priority to consistently get those issues out even in ways where he kind of had to technically, you know, cheat to get you 12 issues in a year. Um, Well, you're also forgetting that Walking Dead is also a television show. Well, yeah, sure, absolutely, but it was a big success before the television show. Sure, but I it's think now I a think bigger this, success. I think the sales rising and individual issues happened after the television show. I think before no, then, really, it was no. it wasn't just yeah. essentially staying consistent. No, no, it continued to grow. The difference with the TV show is you started seeing bigger and bigger leaps, but Walking Dead is a book that continued to grow. Sometimes just five hundred to a thousand readers a month, but continued to grow at a very slow, steady rate long before the TV show hit. Okay, I am I am absolutely confident on that from from looking on the charts. Okay, so and and again, it's the sort of thing. So I guess part of me is what I'm saying is is that the marketplace really may not have caught on to what Robert Kirkman was doing and what was happening with Walking Dead until issue 70 or so when you start seeing situations where he's got five of the top 10 trade paperbacks on there. But I feel like people are sort of, you know, they're starting to catch on now and they're starting to think about it now, you know? And so my theory, and I could be completely wrong is because people did, you really didn't see that factor start to kick in until somebody had already put in five years into it we may not see another second walking dead for another four years or five years, you know, until we start seeing like, who knows, you know, it saga could be that book, you know, it could be the second walking dead. We'll, we'll have to see. It may not, it may not pan out exactly the same way, you know, but you do see things that Vaughn can do. He's very good with his cliffhangers 
in a way that Kirkman has has very studiously tried to do in Walking Dead with the individual issues to keep you coming back for something and keep you coming back for more. That I think, uh, I what I'm saying is is you're probably right. Walking Dead is probably absolutely totally an anomaly, but I think there if it's not, we're not going to know for another like I said years from now. Okay. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm quiet because I'm looking at the sales figures. Uh-huh. I'm looking at indie sales figures, and Saga does pretty well compared with Walking Dead. It has to be said. Yeah, I think I think Hibbs pointed out that that it was it might have outsold. It was yeah. outselling. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it's so. outselling. Mm-hmm. Um, but Walking Dead, Walking Dead does go up, but it goes up really fucking slowly before the television show. Yeah, really slowly, but like a thousand that- in a year. Mm, yeah, no, I'm, lo- I'm looking. I'm looking at the sales figures right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your word for it then. Yeah, yeah, it's a thousand a year, and then the TV show happens, mm-hmm. and then it goes up significantly. Mm-hmm. But then it goes like it has. It's essentially steady, up, mm-hmm. apart from when the telev- apart from when the TV show is airing, and then it mm-hmm. goes up significantly. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it'll go up one point five percent, and then it goes down one point four percent. It's it's so it really is essentially saying steady and then the tv show comes on and it's like plus 2.4 percent plus 4.8 percent i don't okay but it does grow i mean it's slow but it does grow no i'm no, i'm seeing that i'm show, no i am yeah? seeing okay, that i'm just yeah. checking so, no, issue 36 right. was at twenty one thousand. Mm-hmm. issue 20 issue 47 which was a year later is at twenty two thousand. Mm-hmm. then issue 59 a year later is at twenty three thousand. so it's grow. it's going up it's going up yeah really slowly yes yeah, super slowly um, admittedly, but I mean, let's face it. That's that's no, that's a, that's a victory. Is, yeah, yeah. So sales that, staying steady or going up is a victory. Like when you look at in, it, in adding two market. two thousand mm-hmm. over the course of a year, that's that's a plus. Yeah, that's a huge plus. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that you don't really end up seeing in a lot of books coming out by Marvel or DC, for that matter. You know, it's so. It's just something that I've, like I said, I've always been aware of. But on the other hand, I have to admit, I was not aware that the TV show really added that much dramatically to the growth. Oh yeah, no, the TV show right like made it into made it into what it is now. And I, it, but even the news of the TV show did. It's one of those things mm-hmm. where they're like, well, they're making a TV show out of it, and everyone was like, really? Yeah, because right. no, because before that, it was it was a success, but it was an indie comic success, and then it became. A success, like a success for in anyone's world. Well, you know, on the one hand, I agree with you, but I'd be curious. I'm willing to bet indie comic success, like the trade paperbacks were selling way more and that Kirkman was seeing was seeing really great money even before that at that stage, you know? I, I could be wrong. It's I mean, very, I think it's swimming in money now, but <laughs> it, it would be something that I would like to, I would be really curious about. What was very funny was I told you before that I was listening to the Nerdist Writer podcast, that Chick Egley, who's who worked with um, Kirkman on The Walking Dead and is now doing The Powers Show with Bendis. Mm, uh, right. He's also, he's also developing Thief of Thieves, the Kirkman comic. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and he says outright, Kirkman basically created that to be sold to the television show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet that was greeted with a lot of shock and surprise by the listeners. Well, I'm sure somewhere Kirk was like, "Shut up!" 
Shut up. <laughs> I, love, I love comics, remember? But uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he's like, you know, he really, once he realized how a television show works, he this made sure his next creation was more tuned to that. So, yeah. Uh, well, that's actually one of the things that I think is really funny and sort of, it, it's it's one of the few times where I felt that Mark Miller was at least giving me good value for his bullshit is he was talking about how he sold Wanted and the Hollywood guys were like, what else have you got? And he's like, uh, I, uh, nothing. So, you know, and he was like, I've got, I, you know, he clearly obviously is creating stuff with an eye toward the secondary market. Um, uh, secondary market being Hollywood, where bags and bags of money are bestowed upon you. But I, um, I said, you know, I said this in uh, for CBR last week. Like Mark mm-hmm. Miller has ended up being the guy who has been like he's ended up being one of the most important comic creators of the last decade. Yes, <laughs> if you look, absolutely. If you look at the, what he's done, and mm-hmm. it's one of those things that like I for years discounted because I was like, I don't like Mark Miller's comics. But then there comes a point where you're like, you've just got to accept that Mark Miller is the guy who changed the game. Yeah, he really did. He changed it very, very significantly. But I don't know. We'll see. You could end up in the long run saying we could end up saying the same thing about Kirkman, too. Oh, I think, I think you can already say that about Kirkman. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, let's put it that way. I mean, he, it might, he certainly... It might be a smaller game, but I think he's definitely... I think, I think, and again, I really genuinely think that the television show is what makes him the game changer. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think once you factor that into the mix of everything else he was doing, I think it shows that how important it is to control your work, not only in the sense of owning it, but in the sense of being involved in the adaptations. Yes. Yeah, that that appears to be a huge factor, and not least of which because it opens you up to a lot of other networking opportunities and opportunities to forge new partnerships and things like that. But yeah, when you're just a guy who's like faceless drone number 307, I don't know, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I've always wondered when or why or where or if it will ever happen that that Marvel, now that it's a movie producing company, will actually turn around to someone like Hickman and Bendis and go, hey, you know what? We're going to fund your book. You know, I mean, we're going to we're going to make your movie, you know, I mean, I, why I've, they? Uh, I, I've I've been thinking around this a lot. There was an interview mm-hmm. about Marvel now where someone asks, you know, why are you launching with Uncanny Avengers? Mm-hmm. And Brie's response is because it's a new book, and that really has stuck with me. Because it's like, yes, insofar as there has never been a comic called Uncanny Avengers to get before, but right. it's an Avengers X Men book. It's not new. Yeah, and I just had this moment of, if that's if they genuinely think that's a new book, mm-hmm. they're fucked in the long term. And it really becomes oh, yeah. how quickly can they exhaust the IP that they've got. Well, oh, uh, and and it makes no sense because they have people there who want to do creator own work. I don't understand why neither Marvel nor DC put significant money into their creator own imprints. Well, uh, my theory is is they will when they start losing enough creators. You know, uh, if they start losing enough people and the sales are are there, then they'll think about it. 
I mean, because I honestly, I do think that, you know, as much as they say, oh, yeah, we love this guy or we love that guy, there's a very, you know, those people will eventually fall out of favor or could do something that could get them, you know, on the blacklist, so to speak. But yeah, I think once you have a bunch of creators who have left comics and are still showing that they can carry the numbers. I mean, I think that's the thing that frustrates me so much when you see something like Bendis on Powers, you know, where it's like he's selling 60,000 copies of a Marvel comic. And then with his own name on it, he's selling, you know, what, 12,000 or 14,000 copies of Powers, Mm -hmm. you know? My personal feeling, and I could be wrong, is is that he would be selling way more than that if he was publishing twelve issues a year of that. You know, but yeah, but here's um, the question: Do you think that if he wasn't working so much on Marvel books, that he would be able to do twelve issues a year? I'm thinking here about Kirby, mm-hmm. like, who has repeatedly said that Astro City is a harder book to write and takes him more time. Yeah, I you know, I, I wish you hadn't said that because, well, I mean, Kurt Busiek listened to us once. Chances are good he's not going to listen to us again. But I've I, that that has never sat well with me. I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I'm sure that it must be true, but I'm always like, how can you say that? I guess, you know what I mean? Unless there's some we, without admitting that work for hire is essentially easier work to do, you know, which he's kind of. For me, it's more the fact that Kirkman at a certain point did stop writing for Marvel and he did stop writing Marvel Team Up and Marvel Zombies. And he, you know, he did actually say like, yeah, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket. And he made a he made a big he kind of made, made a, a video out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He made a video of it and he, you know, and he and he put, you know, he really put his put himself out there. Um and I do think that there is something to be said for the the fact that, yeah, if if Bendis was writing one book or two Marvel books and not four plus, um, yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, is with Powers, everyone's, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Mike Avon, I mean, has got, you know, a really great day job with Valve and he may not be able to do 12 issues of that, but there's no reason why Bendis couldn't start up 12 issues of something and keep delivering on it. I can't, I mean, as you and I have talked about, I don't believe that the reason why brilliant is so late is because of Mark Bagley, you know, uh, although I don't read the, the news press enough to know if that's true, but I would say that's pretty much the case, right? What the brilliance is late because of Bendis. Yeah, I mean, or or rather, there's been no news where people specifically said, "Oh, Brilliant is late," and it's late because of Bagley. Because no, no late. one, no one has said anything about why Brilliant is late. The only thing they had was when they were initially going to say they initially said it was going to be reprinted from pencils, and then they were like, "We're adding an inker," but that mm-hmm. was that's before issue one. Mm-hmm. Since then, it has an amazingly sporadic publishing career, like a bit yeah. like all of Bendis's creator own books, though. Yes, ben, exactly. Bendis has never. That's not true. Bendis has not, since he started getting regular Marvel work, been exactly. able to put out creator-owned work on a regular basis. Yeah. Even when his regular basis is one every two months, no, he'll skip that as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I you know, I, it makes sense to me, but again, it frustrates me because I feel like there were a lot of opportunities for those sorts of situations to happen, you know? But I, you know... Uh, 
so we'll see. You know, I'm very interested to see with, I guess this is, again, why we're talking about why Monkey Brain feels way more relevant than, than Marvel now, at least to me and my interests in comics, because you have people who are like, yeah, I'm doing stuff that I'm owning and it's, and I'm monetize, trying to monetize it through the digital market and then seeing where it goes from there. That's, that's a huge commitment. That's not an easy thing. And it's more of a commitment than Marvel saying like, yeah, uncanny Avengers. Yes. Perfect. We've never done a title called uncanny Avengers. It's um, a new title, Jeff. Yeah. You know, I was, I was telling Hibbs, I kind of feel like what they should do is actually introduce a new line of superheroes that are all named after their adjectives. You know what I mean? So, so people are like, have... I am advantageous. I am exactly. It's like That's when it turns into Cafe Gratitude, though, Jeff. <laughs> Listeners who don't know this, there's a place in San Francisco. Actually, there's multiple places in San Francisco called Cafe Gratitude. Cafe Gratitude is best characterized as a hippie cafe, where <laughs> instead of ordering what you're ordering, you order you order something. So you're like, I am... You don't say, I'd like a delightful sandwich. You have to say, I am delightful. At which point, yeah. case, the person taking your order will be like, you are delightful. Yes. And it's all like that. It's, it's, yeah. it's one of the most embarrassing dining experiences you'll ever have. <laughs> it totally is. It's great. Yeah, there's, but, you have to actually self-affirm. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Um, I, I hate that place with a passion. Even if I liked their food, I wouldn't go to that place because of that. Nonetheless... <laughs> That's what would happen if everyone had an adjective as a name. It'd be great. Well, not everyone, just the specific guys that you make super, you know, so that that super, way instead exactly. of... Super, exactly. I am super. I am awesome. I am super. I am astonishing. So you could have you could have astonishing X-Men and you could have astonishing and the X-Men. You could have astonishing, astonishing. You could have astonishing and uncanny, you know? Spectacular, like astonishing. <laughs> yes, amazing and astonishing like together again for the first time in one book they just have to you just got to name yeah, them that give much. it time jeff give it time <laughs> maybe in the great marvel overhaul of 2014 uh, when when the re-evolution the, dear god re-evolution marvel now exclamation point re-evolution it all sounds like hair care products, doesn't it? I it, mean, all, it's no, just... it all sounds like someone – it sounds like Chris Morris has taken over the Marvel marketing department. <laughs> Cake is going to be the next big title they're announcing. They're like, yes, <laughs> Fraction. John Romita Jr. Cake. Fucked and bombed. <laughs> <laughs> I am not getting your uh, no doubt incisive in joking there, but I do I, love I, the I, idea I, of a book yeah, called Cake. I'm really sorry. Um, cake was the name of a fictional drug that Chris Morris's on uh, Brass Eye television show got real politicians oh, yes. to ask real questions about in Parliament. Yes, yes, you and, have and, mentioned the, it before. And the organization that he created to convince them that, that was real. Was an organize an anti drug organization called Fucked and Bombed. <laughs> it was it was an acronym. It was F U Q D and B O M B D, but it was called oh, Fucked man. and Bombed, and they never got it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those poor politicians—they never stood oh, a chance. Oh, British people. Oh, British people. So, Graham, we've got a shitload of comics to talk about and really no time because no we argued ourselves around and round in circles, really. Okay, so. what's your favorite thing that you've read in the last week? 
let me list my three favorite things because there's so many because I really read a ton of stuff. But what I'll do, I, I have I just not read anything, so you can extensively. take the, you can have the floor. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, you didn't get to the store? No. Oh, it's because oh, well, last week was crazy, as you know. Yes. This week has been crazy with catching up from last week, uh, <laughs> and then July Fourth yesterday, I was I was doing July Fourth stuff. Oh my! See, I was I made it a point to go to the store, but that's that's me. Uh, okay, so let me give you the rundown of stuff that I read that I thought in Batman Incorporated number two. Great! Did you you read that though? I didn't. Play again. Ah, I see. Okay. Uh, Fatal number six, I liked more than the other issues because they've changed it. Uh, he's changed the setting to Los Angeles in the seventies and it kind of rolls more smoothly. It's also just, I feel like they're getting their, the, their, what their sea legs, I guess, uh, new dead Wardians. I'd missed issue three. So I read issues three and four at once. I really like that book at some points. The art goes completely screwy. But overall, it's just um, I, I'm really enjoying how understated it is, considering it is such a mm, not understated concept, I suppose. Uh, Mind MGMT by number two, number two from Dark Horse and Matt Kent uh, was enjoyable. I don't it you know, again, you talk about the shock of the new. It still had enough new stuff going on in it that I was grooving on what was happening, even though in theory it wasn't quite the um, the big bag, big old shiny, you know, box of new that the first issue had. Uh, Prophet issue 26, which is not only um, written by Brand- Brandon Graham, but he also did the art on, was, again, fabulous in that way that I, you know, can understand why it left people cold. And I finally want to mention uh, a, a Tom Neely, two, you know, two punch of his great work on Popeye number three by IDW. I totally recommend people pick this up because Neely not only did the art on the entire issue, but he also did the colors and the letters. And the book just feels way more vibrant. Like they really. The first two issues did a great job of feeling like sort of cigar light in terms of the art. This one really pops and feels like it's it's uh, just just a huge cut above. Um, Roger Langridge is still doing the story, the issue, the the writing the stories, and so um, Popeye versus the Phantom Crusher. It's so it it's got all of those little things that if you're a fan of cigars, Popeye you'll really like it. And the the second punch is that I finally was able to pick up Tom Neely's Doppelganger, which is a book that he did back in 2010, which is basically about two... Um, if you could imagine Popeye wearing a Jughead, Jughead hat and beginning to have a huge fight with himself, um, you, you kind of get the hang of what it's like. It's a very odd little mini comic that is great. Um, and I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what it may or may not mean, but as just a really lovely, drawn, incredibly strange, this fits right into Raw Magazine back in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really great book. Huh. I, um, may, I may have to look for that one. And it's called what? Uh, Doppelganger. It's self-published by Tom Neely um, from, I guess, I Will Destroy You Comics is his, is his thing. Um, if you go to www.iwilldestroyyou.com, 
Uh, you can probably order it from him, Graham. Those of us who shop at Comics Experience are very lucky because he and Hibbs are um, are in direct contact. And so there's a huge ton of Neely's self-published books currently at Comics Experience. If you want, I'll pick, you, pick one up for you and set it your way because it's a great I, read. I would love that. Okay. I will make sure that's done. Really, honestly, the only book that kind of was pretty meh for me um, was Flash issue 10. And Action Comics number 11, which really, I, I guess you haven't read yet, no. but is Morrison. And it just, it was okay, honestly. It wasn't bad, Action Comics number 11, but it was kind of slow. And That's a shame, because uh, issue 10 was great. Yeah, issue 10 was great. And I was like, okay, let's see you ramp this up. And for whatever reason, issue issue 11 felt like a little more of a... I mean, it, it continues all the pieces of the story, but for whatever reason, he just it doesn't have that same pacing. Um, and then, weirdly enough, The Flash is written by Francis Manipal and Brian Buccoletto. But it's Marcus Toe drawing it, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that and probably significantly changes the book. It's unbelievable what a different dynamic it is. It's, uh, and probably it's not really for the best, weird. right? No, I'm afraid not. No. Yeah, I, All of a sudden, I, the book that felt, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed, but also not surprised. So I have a mm-hmm. question. Yes. This episode will go out on San Diego week. Oh, God, yeah. So I have two questions. Question number one. Yes. How glad are you to not be going to San Diego this year? Oh, so very goddamn very. I had a San Diego anxiety dream on Did you? Tuesday night. I'm not going to the con. <laughs> and I had an anxiety dream and it's I, it's good because it's the only one I've had and it used to be when I'd go to cover it I would have anxiety dreams every night of the week before every single mm-hmm. night but yeah I had a dream where David Brothers and I had both been sent to the con mm-hmm. um, by someone like we were covering mm-hmm. it for someone or we were, we were going there on someone's dime definitely and the hotel they put it up put us up in was miles away from the convention and we mm-hmm. both, for some reason, landed on the, like in the same plane, uh, mm-hmm. and we were going to miss the start of it. And because we missed the start of it, we weren't going to be able to check in. And because we couldn't check in, we'd have to have all our luggage with us for the week at the show, at the first night of the show. You know, the worst part about this is every you've, part of that. You've done, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I haven't quite, but I know people who have. In fact, the thing that's really scary is, as you know, there are people who um, have real life stories that are more anxiety making than that dream. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. Like people who have like gone for the flight and there's no reservation made in their name or they do get on the flight and they come down and then there's no reservation in the hotel made under their name. You know, well, I, I remember a certain person of both of our uh, acquaintances who just like the night before, two nights before going to San Diego, found out that the flight and hotel that had been booked in their name yes. by their employer was no longer booked in their name. Mm-hmm. So two nights before, they had to organize everything again. Yeah. At yeah. dramatic personal expense. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Actually, you know, I think I might have mentioned I had an anxiety dream in San Diego, about San Diego, while I was in Portland, probably because I was talking with you and some of the various other comics people that I met while I was up there. But yeah, that night I had a weird, long, extended dream that 
uh, and interestingly enough, that sexy man, David Brothers, was in my dream too, where it was taking San Diego was taking place at an uh, at an abandoned elementary school, um, but there were all these slides that were like hooked up that you know moved up and down from the tops of the buildings down into the basements and back again that people had to catch in order to get from room to room. And I woke up and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a San Diego dream, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 uh so anyway, second question. Yes. What news do you think is going to be uh announced there that no one will expect? God. Uh I feel like I'm the worst person to ask that of, you know what I mean? Cuz I don't even really clearly know what's coming out in the news now, you know? I, I have like, a, I have a really weird expectation that I want to put on record here. If only because if it does happen, which I think is incredibly unlikely, then mm-hmm. I can be like, "Ha." Huh? <laughs> I kind of expect Grant Morrison to say he's leaving DC Comics. Wow. Interesting. Uh, or if he Grant. doesn't, because I don't even mm-hmm. know if he's at the convention, I expect him to say at uh, Morrison Con. Funny. That's I, don't, I don't know why. I have no idea why. But I think, huh. that his, I think his days with DC are, if not numbered now, are going to be numbered very soon. See, I would expect that to come out either next year or the year after like i could be yeah, wrong it, but I, it could be i just i just don't i get the feeling that he's not long for the company actually you know it's interesting reading this action and batman incorporated i was like oh yeah he's really he's writing superman and batman at the same time you know like it's kind of a neat part of me is, so i kind of had this weird thing where i'm like you know i think he's going to continue to do what he's doing for dc for like another year then they might tempt him by giving him something like uh, a Superman, Batman, World's Finest book and try and milk him for another year or two years out of that. And I think it would work. The The flip side of that could be from everything. It seems like the stories that I hear, everyone makes it sound like Grant Morrison is being allowed to do whatever he yeah, wants. Yeah, everything he wants, yeah. Yeah. And I think... Once that changes, if that changes, that's going to be when you'll see the final days start. But if that's not the case, I can see him hanging out for another couple of years easily, you know, because because I don't know, you know, I uh, unlike I don't I don't feel like his bridges are burned at Marvel. He can probably go back and work there. I just don't know if he would necessarily have any interest in it, sort of. Yeah, I, I think his experience was bad enough that I don't yeah. think he'd go back. Yeah, I think no, so, too. I, And the reason I think he'd, he'd leave DC is not that he's fallen out with DC, but I mm-hmm. just suspect that he's going. he's heading towards another of those periods where he'd, he's bored with playing with the toys and wants to do something else. Yeah, I think so. I think he's been at that stage previously during his parts of his tenure at DC. But you know, I think, and I could be wrong. I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that Morrison has enough discipline to necessarily strike out on his own and succeed. You know? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I just, I just, for some reason, I feel that that's in. The it's a great one. Let me see. I'll have to come up with another one that that uh, well, like what would not what would be like the most absurd announcement to come out of san diego walking dead's doing a spin-off series i guess either either tv or comic or both i think that would be like a weird um 
that's an announcement that I could see that would sort of come out of the blue and be fuck with everybody, kind of. I, I've got a second one. <laughs> Ooh, look at you. I'm sure you've probably got a good five. No, 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 no. Marvel doing a Marvel Man series. Oh, yeah. Everyone's As, everyone's as part that. of Marvel now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? I, I, I uh, yeah. <laughs> As you as you've seen an email from me this week, I am having one of those. What's the difference between before Watchmen and Ghost Rider or <laughs> Thanos weeks? Oh yeah, I, um, I, I, and, I'm, and I'm so you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm I just I think here's the thing. I I've, I've been just reading the internets in general. Mm-hmm. DC is very definitely positioned as the devil in a lot of people's minds right now because of Before Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Really, like, very clearly. Yeah. DC is corporate comics and everything that's wrong with corporate comics. Mm-hmm. I think Marvel is somehow worse. Oh, <laughs> and I'm I, with you. And I don't think that people will ever agree with that until they fuck with Marvel Man. <laughs> I think that's the one thing Marvel could do. You know, it's kind of funny. I don't, I don't agree with you on that. What could they? What could they do? Because think about it. They've done the Kirby thing and survived it. Sure. Um, see, I just don't think uh, they've they've done the Kirby thing and survived it. So I just, I honestly, I don't see anything else that they can do. Because Marvel Man is a very specific, like there's there's an That's entire true. generation yeah. that is grown up without. Yeah, who doesn't know Marvel? Yeah. Man? yeah. So it doesn't to me like the the. Anyone to whom Marvel Man has any sort of status has, I think, already had their relationship with Marvel verified one way or the other, if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, short of something like Steve Ditko, like, showing up and being like, I own the rights to Spider-Man and I've published the, you know, first 20 issues of my Spider-Man book uh, digitally, and you can pay get them all for like one ninety nine, and fuck all of you. And then Marvel being like, "No, we're going to have to sue you and shut you up and put you down." And then things could maybe get. I don't know. I just I don't think. I think Marvel uh, to me, obviously, because I'm boycotting Marvel. Marvel really has a uh, a hold on me, such to the point that I, when I was repelled by them. I find myself really weirdly being in this uh, strange, like, I don't want to stop reading DC books kind of thing, even though it's really just two or three titles. Part of me is like, I don't want to give it up, you know? Uh, before, I think before Watchmen's heinous, I'm not going to support it. But I think there's a lot, you know, considering a lot of my cases to be made for why I think that they're, you know, the the way that people are being treated, it sounds like they're being treated pretty shabbily. Uh, at DC in a lot of cases. And it's very hard for me to kind of be, continue buying them. And yet I can't quite give them up. But so for me, I'm sort of at this weird zone of like, I don't, I, a, I think that, yeah, before Watchmen is a huge black eye to DC, but Marvel has always had that stage of like, it doesn't matter what they do. People kind of love them. As long as they keep the movies coming that are faithful you know, to the characters didn't, weren't you, you pointed out that not on this podcast, but on one of your blog ad entries, that Spider-Man movie opened way, way more 
largely than I was expecting it to open on. Oh god, yeah. No, it it it's I think everyone's kind of surprised about it. Yeah, it sounds like even even Sony was like, um, yeah, okay, that's awesome. Like 3D, hooray. But yeah, no, I think I think that that really stuns me. I that's the second at least this it's the second consecutive Marvel movie that I've been wrong on um in terms of how it was going to be received in in the marketplace slash general public so graham i wish i knew what to tell you i mean that would be an interesting thought experiment what could marvel do that could alienate everybody My i, I, I don't, is, I don't is think that, they can i think I, yeah i think it's marvel man or nothing yeah i see and i think honestly think what nothing? it is, is <laughs> i think it's nothing well let's put it this way i think the fact that that the marketplace that the average sales for marvel books are so low is sad you know, so I feel like I I kind of worry that Mar- what Marvel has done, it's not it's not like people are going to be like, oh, I hate you. You suck. We're leaving. It's just going to be people quietly drifting away. And you get to the stage where suddenly what Marvel considers to be a mid tier selling book is in the mid twenty five thousands or something, you know, something that's just 10,000 copies above a cancellation point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't. I don't really know. I know they want to do this rebooting thing for... I mean, honestly, I think that Marvel's done more... The closest thing that Marvel's done to what you would call a, a, a Marvel Man event is raising their prices to three ninety nine and not backing down. I, I think that that's done them more damage than anything they could have done to Jack Kirby or Marvel Man or Spider-Man, you know? I, I really do think that that's... That's the part that's hard is, is that the fans are like, no, we're not going to buy this. And Marvel being like, okay, well, we'll give you a free, free digital comic. And that was, that was my favorite part. It does that. And everyone's like, this is great. Thanks. (laughs) Cause people people were like, that's so great of them. (laughs) You're like, what? Seriously? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. You might be right, man. Um, I don't, I don't know. know. We'll see. I, I, I yeah. both say this though. I'm very glad not to be going to San Diego. Well, yes. Although you and I both have the caveats of there's a lot of fantastic people that we see that when we're down in San Diego. Oh yeah, no, I, people, I always, always, mm-hmm. I, I always when I don't go miss the people that I would see. And a lot of yeah. my favorite people I won't get to see this year because I'm not going to San Diego. Yeah. Nonetheless, every mm-hmm. year without fail that I've been in San Diego. There has been at least one night where I've had to work all through the night. Mm-hmm. No sleep mm-hmm. whatsoever. <laughs> it's yeah. normally the Friday night, meaning I go mm-hmm. into Saturday with no sleep. Always. Oh, my it's, God. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, San Diego is always, and this sounds completely melodramatic, but I'm being genuine, on some level personally traumatic for me. That oh, I, yeah. It takes me a while to be normal again afterwards. And so oh. for, for that alone, I'm glad I'm not going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, <clears throat> excuse me. I, uh, listeners, for those of you who know or may not know, like one of my first years in going down to San Diego after a few early things back in the nineties when it was not San Diego, but I, I went down one year and uh, actually stayed in the same hotel room with Graham when he was writing for io nine and I, I, in order to pay my way, I, I was second stringer on a couple of uh, some of the San Diego coverage. 
And that's really when I coined the term uh, nerd Vietnam. And that's really what I think that's the best oh, description Jeff, for San you, Diego. You had no idea what that like that year was great compared with the following year. <laughs> I'm not, no, I know. I'm that's not even what I'm joking. <laughs> no, I, I know it. I know because I've heard your stories. Actually, I went down the next one or two years since. I, I can't keep it straight. I think uh, I went down the next I, two years. I want to say you've been down two years, but you only stayed for like a day one year or two. You, you like you left on the Friday maybe? Yeah, see this is it. I think I did I did 3 I want to say I did 3 years. The that first year with you, the second year uh where I I think I roomed with Matt Maxwell for most of it. And then the third year was the year that I flew down and flew out. And that was um that was probably the most sensible way of doing it. It kind of was, I have to say, as as hard as it was to kind of leave. I mean, it was the only thing that was crazy about it was really I think it would be great to go through it through Friday and then fly home because I remember I was back at work on Friday and thinking like, ha, 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 those suckers. And then looking at some of the, the tweets flying back and forth between you and other people attending. And I was like, oh, mm. I wish I was there. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, so, it's, um, it's a yeah. very odd time if you're working there. Like every, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I've never been there, not there for a purpose, if that makes sense. Like the only times I've been San Diego, I've been working or I've been doing panels. I've never right. been San Diego as a fan. And I can't imagine it because I did Emerald City once as a fan. And that was weird. And the idea of doing mm-hmm. San Diego, I think, would drive me mad. Yeah. 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 I think I'd No, say it's it. true. <laughs> I'd lose well, the Graham, We should don't shut worry. up, shouldn't we? Yes. I, I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two up. hours. Sorry, everyone. Mm-hmm. We've been mm-hmm. rambling. But on the plus side, we did actually start off talking about comics like fairly intensely. Oh, God, Jeff, what was the what was the segue you were going to use when we were talking about Tharg? Oh, gosh. Oh, I think it was from Tharg to Vampirella. Okay, that's it? good. As long as, yeah. we got, as long as we got that in. Yeah, we, we actually ended up covering that. I, I should also mention, God, do you remember what waffles I talked about last time? Uh, no, I don't think you, did you talk about any waffles in particular as much as just being at the waffle window? Being at the waffle window, uh, I wanted to throw in a few mentions that, yeah, I ended up for those who were wondering, I ate seven waffles in two days, uh, not over the course of the entire week, but just did 48 fucking hours. And I was, Hey, 48 hours is generous. I think you kind of did it in 36 hours. I think I probably did too. Yeah, actually (laughs) from when you start to when you finish it. Uh, there were great ones. I totally heartily recommend getting the frozen chocolate waffles and then letting them thaw so that the ch- the chocolate shell is still hard. It's a dark chocolate shell, but the, the waffle itself is like... It's um, softened up. So yeah, it has softened up. and I mean, it still has some natural crunch to it, but I also had a chocolate waffle that was frozen because uh, the woman behind the counter told me that some people prefer it that way. And um, it was okay. It was uh, That was fun too, but it was nothing like having the, the frozen chocolate waffle thawed. You can also get the chocolate waffle warm, um, and that's for weirdly not my bag. I sort of prefer it the way that I had it. Finally, it was fantastic. I'm and very curious to have a warm, it has to be said. Yeah, I, I, my problem with it is just it's it's messy. <laughs> it's messy in a way that having it be cold and and the crisp dark chocolate shell is is different. I also had a Kate's special waffle, which is something that 
<laughs> Which Nobody is awful. Is you can't buy. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Kate has a, a way, a special breakfast meal that she makes. I got a plain waffle from the waffle window and put the Kate special on top of it. And it was fantastic. It was absolutely the best. Okay. I should so. explain a Kate special is eggs, spinach, garlic. Uh, what else did you put in the one with you guys? Uh, well, I remember that were the there, eggs were poached. Oh, there was, and there was also, um, there's something in town called Mama Lil's Peppers. Oh, They're yeah, like, that's uh, right. Like uh, peppers and brain. Yeah. Which, which is, They're pickled peppers, yeah. Yes. With pickled, so it's pickled peppers, spinach, lots of garlic, poached egg. Throw that on a liege waffle. Fucking phenomenal. Yeah, that was really good. So, I don't know. I, I hope I've got a picture of that. That'll probably be up with this podcast. So. Uh, you also had a farm fusion. Yes, I did, which I meant to talk about, which was a uh, – I forget what – I would have to look it up. Um, it, it's, of course, all vegetables because I, as people should know, am a pescatarian. So until they start putting crab on their waffles uh, – so there's a lot of bacon choices that I was not able to sample. But the farm fusion – Thinking of trying to look this up on the browser really quickly, but I, I'm way ahead of you, Jeff. Are you? Yeah, I'm looking at the menu right now. Keep talking. Mm-hmm. Play for time. Uh, yes. So, ha ha ha. Farm ha, fusion ha, ha. is mushroom, spinach, roasted pepper, tomato, and marinated chevre. Yes, fabulous. Oh, the chevre is marinated. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So it's goat cheese with a lot of great vegetables. Very, very good. Um, and didn't you have a tomato bees as well? Yes, but I talked about that, I think, in the last podcast and showed the picture. So this time around, I wanted to mention the chocolate waffle and then show a picture of it. And then next time, I will probably once again bring up the farm fusion and show a picture of that. So, <laughs> And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your waffle forecast for today. That's right. Man, I'm so hungry. I don't know. <laughs> the other times, it's, I'm like, oh, God, why don't I have one of those now? Where are my waffles right now? Where are my waffles? Now? I have to apologize to both you and the listeners because I am in the basement recording because it's really warm again here in Portland. Um, and all of a sudden, like in the last 10 minutes, so something has started making uh, – I am very warm and metal. Therefore, I will make a clanging noise. Oh, yeah. I think I just heard it. Wow. Uh, Which is kind of disturbing because I'm wondering if something's going to explode. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably worth checking on. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. uh, On that that note, bombshell. Potential literally bombshell. (laughs) Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to us. You're awesome. And I swear to God, I do do really read the Wait What comments. Yes. Not so much. Wait What, though? I do. Yes. I yeah. love you Thank all. You for- I love you all. Goodbye. As they in that song. <laughs> There's a song called Soul Searching by a band called Morgan that uh, has someone's answering machine message playing through one of their songs. And then it's with a story going, I love you all. I love you all. Okay. Bye. <laughs> well, there we go. I am not going to hunt that up and put it on the podcast now, but I probably should. So. No, I think you'll be fine. Bye.